Hello and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Yulia Zhoja. I'm with the Middle East Institute and Georgetown University, and I'm joined today by Giselle Donnelly. I work at the American Enterprise Institute and Dalibor Rohach, also with AEI. On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace that have erupted along a line running from the Baltic to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. If you enjoy this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today, we are joined by Ivan Miklos, who is the former Minister of Finance um, of Slovakia, also former advisor to Ukraine and current advisor to the Moldovan government. And uh, we're looking forward to talking to him about um, reconstruction first and foremost. Um, but before we do that, um, Dalibor, over to you to give us some details and introduce the topic. Well, thank you, Julia. Um, I have to say I have known Ivan since... Uh, the late 1990s, where, when as a precocious high school student, I participated in an essay contest that he organized in his capacity as Deputy Prime Minister of Slovakia, and I won the first prize among high school students in, oh. in the entire country, uh, <laughs> writing a sort of diatribe. Elibor is introducing himself. <laughs> writing a sort of But diatribe against... Story against you know cronyism and 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 big government and 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 those kinds of things um at the time ivan miklos was the deputy prime minister uh in a reformist slovak government that eventually brought slovakia into eu and nato and the oecd and and and, and really uh deserves a lot of credit for for accelerating um the rates of economic growth in the country and and for catching up with with our with our neighbors um since leaving slovak politics He's been involved uh, in numerous countries around the world, advising uh, on economic reforms, questions of privatization, deregulation, institutional reforms, uh, and most uh, prominently since after 2014, he served as the chairman of the strategic advisory group for supporting Ukrainian reforms. Um, And as a result, he was there on the ground uh, during really, really most of the big policy changes that occurred after the Maidan. Um, and, and maybe, um, you know, we'll, we'll get to a sort of more current uh, subjects in a, in, in a moment, but maybe that's a good place to start. Because the magnitude of the change that occurred after the Maidan in terms of economic policy in Ukraine and in terms of setting up Ukraine for long-term success Uh, is not very often appreciated in the in the in in in, in the West. Really, uh, that period uh, five six years after after the Maidan uh, helped Ukraine reverse course in a fairly major way after what was what had been close to two decades of just sort of lost opportunities and 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 and, and missed missed moments where where the country could be sort of pushed in a in a direction of of. You know, greater prosperity and, and and deeper integration with the West. So, so, so I think it might be useful if if he could just sort of take stock of what 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 had what was accomplished during that period, and then we can sort of focus on the impact of the war on Ukraine today and and on the way forward. Ivan, great to have you on the podcast, by the way. Yeah, thank you, thank you for inviting me. Uh, yeah, I think uh, after Euromaidan, or as Ukrainians call it, call it the Revolution of Dignity in 2013-2014. 
it was done a lot. Uh, it was the first period in the Ukrainian uh, independent, independent period as independent state when real reforms have been have been provided. I mean, real real reforms which have been changing the system because from the beginning of 90s till Euromaidan in Ukraine it was created a dysfunctional oligarchy corrupted system. And after Revolution of Dignity, it was the first time when this system was really changing in direction of the normally functioning market economy. In some areas, uh, the, the, the results and, and progress was really, 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 really big, especially in macroeconomic stabilization, the most reform and the best uh, functioning institution became National Bank, Central Bank. They changed the, the currency regime from the, from the administratively held unrealistic level to real floating. They cleaned the banking system, which was really, really difficult. They closed almost half of the commercial banks. Approximately 100 of banks have been closed because many of them, and majority of them have been privately owned, but they, in reality, they served as ATM machines for the owners as the tool for stealing money from the state budget through the guarantee, through the fund of the, of the creditors guarantee. The biggest bank, uh, Privat Banka, was uh, nationalized uh, in 2016 because private owners rejected to to increase capital of this of this bank, and this bank was systemically important. And then also some kind, some some very important structural reforms like pension reform, like uh, deregulation, like improving business environment, uh, fiscal fiscal stabilization uh, as well which means in some areas also in fighting against corruption, but especially for the few areas of the biggest corruption. Also, for instance, uh, increasing of the regulated prices of the gas, because heavily regulated prices for the household have been one of the biggest source of corruption before. It have been increased, which was, of course, politically very difficult. On other side, there have been areas in which there was not uh, sufficient progress, and the uh, most important and the weakest uh, progress was in the judicial, uh, judicial reform and law enforcement, which means still corruption, despite in some few areas it was reduced, this large corruption, uh, corruption still remained a very, very uh, important, important problem. And to conclude, I think the biggest problem of this reform period was that in reality uh, they did what was necessary to do, but finally they, they did only because it was real pressure from the Western partners, especially from the IFIs, particularly from the IMF, because uh, they had program with the IMF. And uh, finally, the most important uh, kind of tool for doing reforms was threat of default. Default was something what, what all Ukrainian politicians are really afraid from. They had this uh, this experience in the past. They had this, you know, when when reforms have been have been started after Euromaidan, it was recession around seventeen percent in 2014-2015, which means it was deep, it was very very deep uh, devaluation from eight hryvnias uh, per dollar to twenty five hryvnias per dollar, which means politicians have been really afraid from from potential default. And finally, they did what was necessary, but only after real pressure after trying to do everything else and still political situation was also not the let's say fully standard because still 
uh, a lot of MPs have been influenced by oligarchs, by 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 influential people, and also political part. Also, this cronyism was you know, still relatively strong. And another area which was almost zero progress during these years was large privatization, which is also illustrating very nicely why. Because uh, ha uh, big uh, SOEs, and uh, Ukraine still had and still has uh, around 3,500 SOEs. Uh, approximately half of them are non-functioning companies, but approximately half, 1,200 approximately, are functioning companies, which usually are very, very, very mismanaged, very poorly managed. The political influence of the uh, those who are managing from the, from the politicians, but also from oligarchs, is is very strong, and it was no real effort to have progress in the large privatization. And usually, also, every attempt for the providing normal, standard, uh, transparent large privatization was stopped through judicial system, which was which is still very corrupted and influenced by the uh, by, by the crony, crony businessmen and, and, and politicians. Which means, on one side, real real progress for the first time in the history. On other side, still not very easy and not very it was done a lot but not so much as it was possible and necessary it, it strikes me that that um this is going to make whatever post-war situation we find ourselves in or and the ukrainians find themselves in uh especially fraught um you know having gone through a partial reform and now suffering the devastation um uh, that the war is, is is causing, although uh, it may be difficult to reopen steel plants in Mariupol anytime soon. <laughs> so if that was your state-owned enterprise, that's uh, that's out the window. But but still, you know, we've seen President Zelensky uh, now for some years, but particularly as a wartime leader, he's he's bound to have huge challenges in continuing the program of reform. Even if he emerges as a kind of, you know, triumphant uh, hero of the nation uh, under very difficult circumstances, what do you foresee under that kind of conditions? Yeah, maybe, uh, maybe first it is important to say what was the development of President Zelensky in connection with reforms before war, because it has had two kind of stages on this, two, two phases. First, when he became president, of course, everybody knows that he was not uh, politically active before. He has no experience here. He had even no interest about politics before. He created his party, which won uh, elections then in August uh, 2019 through the internet during a few, few weeks. Uh, which means, and at the beginning, when he created this first government led by Oleksiy Honcharuk, it was really dream team. I mean, I mean dream team from the point of view of there have been really young reformers, and he really gave them opportunity to change the country. The program declaration of the of the government was unbelievable. It was at that time I wrote article that if they will fulfill what they are declaring there, it will be one of the most reformed uh, government in the world. Unfortunately. And it was not only prime ministers, all, all key ministers, but also other key institutions like tax service, custom, others, uh, 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 prosecutor general. But then, unfortunately, after less than one year, he lost patience and he 
five, not only prime minister, but also finance minister, economy minister, uh, prosecutor general, and he started to appoint people whose uh, main qualification was loyalty. And he started to provide what Russians are calling which means direct management. And then those people have been not really reformers, they just have been waiting for what they will be asked from the top and so on and so on. And the reforms have been kind of at least at least slowing down. Uh, which means that it was also, also kind of uh, evidences of the misusing of power in these law enforcement institutions, especially through the uh, prosecut new prosecutor general, the Venediktova, and so on and so on. And in this situation, then war came. And uh, at the beginning, before war, there have been public opinion polls in which people have been very skeptical regarding Zelensky's ability to serve as, as war leader. Uh, fortunately for Ukraine, it didn't uh, prove, and really Zelensky showed really, really strong, strong leadership and marvel how he's managed. Now, question is, what will happen afterward? Firstly, we don't know, unfortunately, when war will, will be finished. Unfortunately, I don't think so that it will be such, so soon because there is the these uh, chances for some kind of compromise are, are close to zero, not only because Putin doesn't want to make compromise, but maybe even more because for Zelensky it is very difficult to make any any consensus. Now public opinions polls in, in Ukraine are even less uh, supporting to giving up Crimea, for instance, or part of Donbass or anything. And a strong majority of Ukrainians believe now that Ukraine will win uh, this this war, which means, and of course, uh, it is impossible to respect this this collective will, this emotion, which is even stronger after this uh, this this terrible information about these uh, war crimes and, and everything connected connected with this. Another important point is that even before war, the political influence of the veterans have been. Uh, have been really, really strong in Ukraine. And now veterans will be much, much more veterans, much, much more weapons among people and so on, so on. which means now to, to make, even to propose some compromise, which will be uh, in direction of giving up anything, is, is simply simply impossible, impossible to imagine. That's the reason why it is very, very important to support as much as possible Ukraine militarily, financially, uh, to, to, to win this, this war, and uh, this war can be ended only after, I am convinced about this, uh, only after, after Putin will lose his, his position and his power in, in Russia, uh, which means it, it seems to be that it will be not such quick solution. And in connection with this, of course, as longer war will, be, will, 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 will continue, as... Uh, as, as, as worse uh, consequences, I mean consequences not only for Ukraine, but for whole world economy, Europe, and so on and so on. Which means uh, it, we can expect that it will, be, it will be necessary to really have significant help from, from the West. Tremendous, the, the sources, hundreds of billions of, of dollars, surely, will have, to be, will have to be spent. And of course, it will be very difficult how, very, dif very important, how Ukraine and Ukrainian government will be able to manage this process. And in this regard, it will be also very important to, to provide not only money 
from the from the Western partners and countries, and but also of course from the private investors, but also to provide uh, technical assistance and also to provide some kind of guidance and and I mean I mean similar similar framework as uh, after Euromaidan when these reforms, uh, structural reforms, institutional reforms have been have been pushed and supported by the by the Western partners. I would like to take a step back and focus a bit on Russia in Ukraine. Uh, you've been following this very closely over the last few years. And so my question is, I guess, almost, yeah, threefold. Um, how much, the first part would be, how much was Putin and his system, his cronies, how much were they losing due to these reforms that you're um, that you've mentioned before in other words how angry did they get with what Zelensky was doing especially in the first year when it comes to reforms and and maybe consider this in the context of not just Ukraine but the region as we know many countries in and outside of the EU on the eastern flank have been struggling with direct or indirect russian influence in trying to rid themselves of the former system and hands of russian ties and and then the second part of the question is Maybe it's not threefold. Maybe I can do it in two. The second part of the question is, so now that we're looking at this battle of the Donbass, a lot of people are asking, what are um, what are Russian interests in the Donbass and beyond? What were they in Crimea beyond the humanitarian issues, beyond the atrocities, but in financial and economic terms? What does Putin? What did Putin have to gain from Crimea, particularly um, in 2014? And what does he have to gain now if he would, um, as he's trying to take the Donbass with what exists? there, the industry, the agriculture, but also the Russian um, connections and ties through oligarchs? Yeah, yeah, very good questions. Uh, first, uh, it is very interesting that from this point of view, what Putin lost in Ukraine and Putin's crony allies and disconnected with his ability to interfere in the Ukrainian politics and so on, so on it is really important to differentiate the period of Poroshenko and period of Zelensky. Because uh, mm. maybe paradoxically, during Poroshenko's period, Medvedchuk, who is the, the, the most well-known personality, even personally connected to uh, Putin and uh, one of the leader of the opposition bloc, which is pro-Russian party, Medvedchuk uh, was enriched uh, a lot of during Poroshenko term, which means maybe paradoxically, but his fortune uh, increased significantly after Euromaidan in 2015, 2019. Then uh, when Zelensky came to power, Zelensky started to really, uh, uh, to, to really passing measures against him. Maybe you know that he was in home arrest during last half a year, I think. Uh, he was his uh, TV channels have been uh, cancelled the, the licenses for these TV channels and so on so which means maybe maybe part of the reason of the Putin's uh, bigger aggressivity in last uh, months 
uh, was connected with this that the real pressure against Medvedchuk uh, really increased uh, during uh, Zelensky's uh, presidential term in comparison with Poroshenko's term. Poroshenko was even accused, as you maybe know, uh, by the by the prosecutor general Venediktova at the end of last year from the crimes connected with some illegal businesses in these occupied territories, also in connection with those people like 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 Medvedchuk and former energy minister and so on. So <clears throat> but uh, I think it is connected with your second second question. I think that primarily Putin's decision to invade uh, Ukraine and this, it was clear from the beginning, but now it is clear even even more and more. Was very not only responsible and crazy, but also also stupid, especially from point of view of Russian interests, and especially from also long term Russian interests, because Russia will, I feel, at least from the long term perspective, Russia will pay even even bigger price and and Russians and and Russia from this from this war. Which means, first, in my opinion, first uh, and most important reason behind this, behi behind a crime, annexation of Crimea, and now this war, are not some kind of calculation of what he will gain economically and so on. So on. Firstly, he used it also for tool for increasing his popularity, and we can see it after every war which he started: Second Chechnya war, then war against uh, Georgia. Then annexation Crimea, his popularity increased in connection also with propaganda, what he used, and so on. So. But even more important is that seems to be that he is really convinced about this idea of bigger Russia. He is maybe convinced about this that is under threat if Ukraine will be not part of his of, of Russia influence and, and and so on so on. Because strictly from the economic point of view. He's not not only that he's not gaining anything. He's he's gaining much much big big burden, of course. Even even Crimea, which was annexed without any 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 debt of the, of the soldier, uh, he has to pay around approximately estimates are that Russia paid approximately three billion dollars yearly for the subsidizing yeah, the, the 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 region. Now, what he will gain if he will finally Gained uh, totally, totally destroyed uh, Donbas, Mariupol. Let's say this it is absurd. Liberated uh, Mariupol, which doesn't exist already. Which means finally, not only, not only that he will, if I hope not, but if he will gain this this Donbas and and Luhansk region, what what he will gain? He will have totally destroyed country infrastructure with the people who will hate him and who will hate the Russians for generations. Which means there is no no rational uh, understanding or or, or 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 reasoning reasoning what is what is happening at all. If I may, I'd like to um, come back to a point that that Giselle touched on very briefly, namely um, this question of how after the war we can make sure that Ukraine continues on its path of economic reforms and policies that 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 will help generate generate prosperity and, and my own thinking on this is somewhat conflicted so on the one hand uh, there seems to be a disconnect between the sheer magnitude of the of the destruction brought about by the war on Ukraine's economy uh, which would be I guess like of the order of tens of percent of GDP this year alone 
like when you think about the sort of you know is 30 40 nobody nobody really knows and uh and a fairly modest talk of, of actual sort of economic assistance to, to Ukraine. So, so right now in Washington, we are in the midst of the spring meetings of the World Bank and, and the IMF. Um, the World Bank has apparently mobilized through a multi-donor trust fund around three billion U.S. dollars to help uh, help 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 Ukrainians. And 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 that, that seems like a, like a trivial number compared to to what what, what the Ukrainians need. Uh, on the other hand, as a sort of counterpoint to that, um, I sometimes um, sort of try to, to keep in mind that uh, v- very often we, we also misremember past efforts and even successful efforts at, 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 at foreign assistance. Uh, the Marshall Plan, you know, relative to the Second World War sort of destruction on the European continent was, was relatively macroeconomically trivial. Right, and and there's this sort of famous work by people like Icon Green and DeLong that point out that it wasn't really about rebuilding Europe with American money. It was more about sort of facilitating certain political bargains in countries that kept these these European Western European countries on path towards you know greater prosperity and and, and helped sort of embed democratic institutions after after the war war and set stage for for those thirty years of of growth. So so. What, what what is your own thinking on this? Like, are you are you happy with where the conversation on sort of post-war reconstruction of Ukraine looks like right now? Should we be you know throwing around larger sums? Should we be thinking creatively about how to make Russians pay for what they did in 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 in, in, in Ukraine? Any any thoughts that you might have on this would be great. Yeah, I agree. I agree with you that finally money will be important, but not the most important. The most important will be the will afford of Ukrainians and uh, not only will to spend effectively this money but to create institutions and to create rules of the game uh, in in their country and in this regard maybe even more important than money will be integration of uh, Ukraine to European Union and we have we have examples for this not not I mean war examples but countries like Bulgaria and Romania who did not reforms at the beginning of transition, who had really also this kind of spontaneous transition, huge corruption, everything. Which means situation in Bulgaria, Romania at the beginning of 90s was really comparable with the situation in Moldova or in in Ukraine. But then they 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 had chance to be integrated, and it was really strong stimulus for doing also necessary reforms. Which means in this regard, I think very important will be also this. To give uh, the candidate status, candidate status doesn't mean that it is promise without conditions. Of course, it is it is very condition based uh, process, and in connection with this, uh, build institutions to do necessary reforms to fulfill conditions for for to be integrated in the in the European Union, and in connection with this emotion, it is necessary to know that, and in my opinion, it will be the most important that after, you know. After annexation of Crimea, Putin, what Putin did, Putin, Putin gained Crimea, but he lost Ukraine. Because before, Ukraine was really divided nation. I mean, politically divided. It was, it was kind of connected with the language, but not only language, with the eastern and western parts, rural and, and urban population, uh, younger people, elder people. But in reality, it was divided uh, nation politically. He united, he created political nation, Ukrainian political nation. Now, after this war, 
this unity of this of this political nation will be almost 100% and it will be unity also on the direction of the geopolitical direction of of becoming part of the west and so on so on which means despite of all this tragic and, and terrible development you know in Slovakia we are telling that everything bad is is good for something of course i'm not telling that war this terrible war is good for something but it could have this kind of uh consequences that it will really uh let's say at least create precondition for successful not only reconstruction of the country from point of view of infrastructure and everything but also from point of view of really let's say having uh, having a real deep uh change of the system speeding up change a change of the system from this old oligarchy corrupted system to to normally functioning market economy and if we are speaking about figures <clears throat> now it is too premature to speak about how it will looks you know we are still in war unfortunately now it is much more i'm not saying that it is not necessary to think about and to prepare of course it is but now it is much more important to focus on the help ukraine as much as possible to win this war and in this regard the the most important is to stop as soon as possible to importing gas and oil uh, from russia because we are financing still this i mean we especially eu countries by buying uh, gas and and oil uh, we are financing this in this world i'm glad you you brought up the comparison between Ukraine and Moldova now to Romania and Bulgaria a few years ago. In Romania and Bulgaria, one can argue, are on the safe side because they're within the EU and so that's helping and all of that. But I want to take advantage of you being now connected to Moldova and looking into that country because you brought up something that does make sense to me, the effects of solidifying political will under under distress, under war. If we're looking at Ukraine, that seems, and you explained that pretty well, that's all clear. And I don't think there's any doubt that um, this um, almost 100% will endure over generations. Um, so that's certainly going to help. But we're focusing, or we will be forced to focus increasingly on Moldova, small country at the border, um, outside the EU, just as poor, um, with the same problem of oligarchs and crony systems. And there we have, don't we, a similar situation with what we had in Ukraine before 2014, of a population divided almost 50%. Now the government is inching and winning a few more percents through a humanitarian message um, on the side of the West, but completely exposed um, to Russian influence in either hard or soft power way. So how do you see this, um, um, this war impacting um, Moldovans, both in terms of political will and in terms of the government that there is clearly pro-Western, but is very restricted in the moves it can make, particularly when it comes to dependence on Russia in energy, in military, um, with Transnistria, etc. Yeah, uh, first, let me clarify this this comparison with, I mean, Ukraine and Moldova on one side and, and, and uh, Romania and Bulgaria. I meant by this uh, that it was comparable situation at the beginning of 90s and then because bulgaria yeah. and romania uh, received this chance to be integrated it was stimulus for of course it was not uh, fully comparable because as i said in 
in, in Ukraine, it was divided nation, and it was not such strong support. But Moldova, very, yeah, in Moldova, <laughs> it will depend very strongly what will happen with, with Moldova depends now what will happen with Ukraine, how war will, will, be, will be finished finally. You know that just now uh, Russia announced that their goal is to also uh, in, uh, also uh, occupy or to, to gain uh, Odessa. If they will gain Odessa and Odessa region, then they are in, in Transnistria. If they are in Transnistria, uh, Moldova, uh, uncomparable with, with, uh, with Ukraine, almost doesn't have army, which, mo- which means chance for Moldova to defend themselves is close to zero. That's the reason why I have to be also now relatively careful also in this supporting. They are supporting Ukraine, but officially they are not such strongly saying on their side as, as maybe some other, other countries. And this is the main reason. Yes, you, you have mentioned, which means what I, I think is, is there are two possible alternatives. If Ukraine will win this war, if uh, Putin will not gain uh, territory, any territory of Ukraine by force, then it is very realistic, realistic uh, prediction that uh, Russia will lose also Transnistria. If Russia will lose Transnistria, then of course Moldova chance of Moldova to be part of Western world will be will be increased significantly. In Moldova, you are right that it is really really difficult situation today. Not only because energy, because uh, because uh, contract with Gazprom, because Moldova gas is majorly owned by Gazprom, but also because inflation, because very poor country, and so on, so on. But at the same time, in Moldova, in the last uh, one and a half years, the President Sandu and her party gained almost constitutional majority in the parliament by elections. They have now 62 MPs in 101 uh, MPs parliament and this party is is really party which is pro-western pro-eu pro-reform anti-corruption party which means I'm not saying that it is a rosy situation but even this result of uh, Maya Sandu and her uh, party in elections in presidential elections and then parliamentary elections is showing that the, it is chance it is chance if Moldova will have will we'll have opportunity to be integrated and as you know Moldova together with Ukraine and with Georgia now is fulfilling this questionnaire and it applied for candidacy status then it is real chance that uh, it, it, that Moldova will, uh, will, will successful in this in this regard everything now depends on the war in Ukraine what will be the end of, of this war and this is really important not only for Ukraine. On this example, you can see that it is important for, for Moldova, but it is important for every country in the world, because if this precedent of the changing borders by force will be successful, then it is creating a really new, new very dangerous situation for everybody, and particularly for the countries, small countries like Moldova, which are not covered by NATO, uh, NATO membership. As you um, talked about the possible silver linings of this of the situation, I was reminded of that famous quote from Samuel Johnson that when a man knows he's to be hanged in a fortnight, it concentrates his mind wonderfully. 
um, some just wanted to flaunt my my classical education yeah um but in any event uh even uh, I, I had i was extremely giddy about getting you on the podcast and and it was it was a real real pleasure but i'm afraid we are running running out of time so, so unless giselle wants to jump in with one final point no, I did have I did have a question. I want next time we have to talk a little bit more about judicial reform, which I thought was a really profound point that Ivan um, raised at the beginning. But his concluding note about the criticality of the war in Ukraine seems to me like the right place to end. So uh, it's not exactly a cheery note, but it's a focusing note. Very much agree with that. So over to Yulia for her closing closing thoughts. Yes. Ivan, thank you so much for joining us. This has been um, enlightening uh, when it comes to understanding Ukraine, um, what has happened until the war and what the outlook is as unknown as it is right now. It's helpful nevertheless, and for the region as well, um, hearing hearing your thoughts and how the countries fit um, with one another and what we can expect um, for the time uh, for, for the next few months. So thank you so much from me, Yulia Zhoja, and my friends. Giselle Donnelly and Dalibor Rohach. Thank you for listening to the Eastern Front, a podcast dedicated to security challenges that have emerged along the line from the Baltic to the Black Sea. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website, ai.org. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please get in touch with us on Twitter using the hashtag EasternFrontPod. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Thank you and goodbye.